Shamai, uh, this is take three. This is take three because the previous two times we're trying to do the sponsorship, I messed it up royally. However, take three is going to go smoothly. I could have just not told you about take one and two. I could have actually published them, but oh, um, published? Yeah, published them, but I decided against that. So, sponsors today are Rugby for Heroes. They organized the Beer and Gin Festival um, recently in, oh God, when was that? May, yeah, it was in May. Uh, which raised a load, of sh- a shed load of money for Team Rubicon UK and for the 353 Trust, which is a military charity. And now, Mikey Valance and his merry band of men at the Old Lemontonian, Old Lemontonian Rugby Football Club uh, have organised the Rugby for Heroes Golf Day, which is an annual golf day. They do it every year. That's why it's called an annual golf day. This one is going to be raising money for the 353 Trust, a military charity set up by a military veteran, uh, Tony Lewis, previous podcast guest, MD of West Winnesan, and the father of uh, Comrade Lewis, who was sadly killed in Afghanistan in 2011, serving with serving with three power. Um, actually, new comrade is on that same tour. An amazing guy. It's such a shame he's gone. 353 Trust is set up in his name. Rugby for Heroes are going to raise money for the 353 Trust. So, it's going to be a golf day, as I've already said. The teams, uh, the teams are it's four ball, four ball to enter. So and the cost is four hundred and forty pounds plus VAT per team. Um, so if you do your maths properly, one hundred and ten pounds plus VAT per person. However, why am I saying however? This fee that you pay to enter will cover obviously your arrival registration, uh, purchase of mulligans, and a full English breakfast. You'll get a complimentary thank you gift bag um, and you'll also get a tournament golf shirt. It's an 18-holer. Back to the clubhouse afterwards. Uh, there's a pre-dinner drinks reception because there's dinner as well. Uh, you go to the dinner. There's tournament prize presentations at the dinner. There's wine. There's beer. There's spirits. There's soft drinks available from the bar. There's even an after-dinner speaker. And I think I know who that is. Do I know who it is? I'm trying to think. Mikey Valance, who organises these events, he's pulling his hair out going, yeah, Hugh, I flipping told you, but don't say it on the podcast, it's not being announced yet. So I won't. If I'm thinking who it is, I'm thinking, it's flipping awesome. Awesome guest speaker. That is it. 21st of, 21st of June, it's happening. It is not far away. I will see you there. I won't be at the golf on the day, I don't think. I might be at the golf on the day, but I won't be playing due to injury. However, I will definitely be at the dinner and uh so yeah come along get and get involved uh, loads of people playing golf really badly for a good cause rugby forheroes.org for more information or rugby number four heroes on social media cheers mike and cheers to rugby for heroes sorting that out also sponsoring us today are westway nissan the uk's largest nissan dealership not just the largest nissan dealership but nissan dealership where you can get exclusive deals of Nissan makes and models that you can only get certain makes and models of Nissan at Westway Nissan. Now, I don't know what Tony has said to Nissan to get that deal or the actions he's taken to get that deal for Westway Nissan. I I was about to speculate it could be illegal and involve weaponry, but I won't, I won't speculate that. So that is not me speculating that at all. Westway Nissan are an above board organization. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my god. I'm always saying I think I've just lost a sponsor. I'm only joking. Westway Nissan. They have got deals in <laughs> They have got deals in Nissan. Uh, you can get only certain makes and models of Nissan with Westway Nissan. 
because that's the kind of deal they got with them because they're a massive UK dealership and they're super all over the place, been operating for years and years and years and years and years and years. They also give up to a 20% discount off um, off purchases for eligible purchases for serving personnel and veterans. Yes, indeed. They've actually got a, a promotion on now. They've got a load of, uh, got a load of deals on for the Nissan X-Trail. Um, I think it's pretty much every different variation of the Nissan Extra you can get a deal on up to like seven and a half grand off. So, um, and aside from so get along on the website, have a look at that Westway Nissan the Cut UK. But aside from that stuff, they do new vehicles and they do uh, used vehicles. They do private and they do commercial. They also do hire, so you can pretty much get anything you want vehicle-wise, long term, short term, from Westway, Westway Nissan the Cut UK. Or West Venice on social media and on LinkedIn. Finally, Team Rubicon sponsoring us. Team Rubicon UK, who are the pleasure, if that's the right word, or good fortune, that is the right phrase, to deploy with them to Mozambique in March. At, um, sorry, in April, beginning of April, in support of them while they were helping uh, disaster in disaster response and disaster recovery in uh, Mozambique on the east coast of Africa. Team Rubicon UK are a disaster response charity made up predominantly of ex-military volunteers. They also had a lot of civilians uh, with them, uh, volunteering with them, which is amazing. It's a fantastic mix of people and skill sets that Team Rubicon bring to the floor. Uh, they, yeah, the last deployment was Mozambique. Before that, they deployed on Christmas Day to, uh, where did they go, Indonesia. Um, the monsoons and the hurricanes and all that hit out there. They are non-stop. Um, Team Rubicon can only go on as long as their funding allows. So, if you can, please help with Team Rubicon. TeamRubiconUK.org forward slash donate. Or if you'd like to become a volunteer, they call it volunteers, grey shirts. Prestigious. Prestigious volunteers, grey shirts. Um, You can go and sign up at Team Rubicon UK and become a grey shirt like myself or like many other podcast guests. Fantastic organisation. I'm very, very, very proud I'm privileged to be a part of the organization and to have met and worked with the people I work with and be able to help all those people in Mozambique that we were able to help. Uh, the, the total number, directly and indirectly, that Team Rubicon helped. Bear in mind, they only deployed maybe 20 to 30 people of the entire operation. They helped over 170,000 people out there, which is unbelievable when you consider how small a team Team Rubicon are. Um, they are not government funded. All of their money comes from the generosity of the public and all of that money goes to good use being generous to other members of the public in other countries who have been smashed by disasters however they also do help with disaster response in the uk responding to the flooding and the light and things like that so please help teamrubiconuk.org that is it on to the guest of today he's the first guest to do a repeat appearance james glancy he was james glancy cgc he still is He's now uh, James Glancy, flipping member of the European Parliament. So uh, we got into it. Uh, try and work out what the bloody hell, uh, how did that come about? Because <laughs> I, I had no idea. Enjoy. Hey, Chower, James Glancy, former SPS, former Royal Marine, now member of the European Parliament. Enjoy.
congratulations, James Glancy. What am I congratulating for? I don't know. You tell me. It's not the MEP bollocks. It's uh, <laughs> okay. starts me to go on. It's uh, second, uh, the first ever second appearance on the HR podcast. I thought it would be that. So I was the fiftieth. Right in front of that. I was the fiftieth. You were the fiftieth, and you're the first to. Uh, you, know, you can move it about when you're you waffling. I was uh, I was joking about the MEP sentiment. Absolutely, congratulations, mate. Thank you. However, I am more pleased to be back here with you speaking so what number is this what number what podcast are we on 55 okay 55 it was only five yeah. okay but don't ch- i let's i want to get back on to the mep stuff yeah yeah so Wait, let me what th- happened so, i don't understand no not most people don't and in some ways that's including myself but what happened uh, since i last left you have been working on my conservation projects with veterans for wildlife um we've been working on pitches for new conservation adventurous wildlife tv shows and that still goes on but i um, got asked to go to a party on the 29th of march which is when britain was supposed to leave the european union as was um mandated by parliament and what Theresa may said was going to happen and i got asked to go to a party um, basically a group of people had um put down Sorry. Could, do you want to sort your phone out? No, Sorry. <laughs> Basically, a group of, a group of um, people from this organisation called Leaves Mean Leave who were passionate about leaving the European Union put down a deposit to have a party on the 29th of March because they thought it would be some sort of Freedom Day and that, obviously that didn't happen. I got asked to go um, because I knew somebody that was going and they wanted to make up some numbers to make sure the booze got drunk. So I went along. Free booze. And... <laughs> I then got said, asked, would I be interested in running in the Euro elections <laughs> on the 29th of March? And I thought, you know, I have supported Brexit because of sovereignty. I believe this country should be uh, a sovereign nation. We must work with other countries and we can come back to that later on. Um, and I also felt that, you know, a lot of people that have voted leave have been um, labelled as extremists and fascists and racists and all sorts of things which aren't true and I thought you know what I'm going to stand up and say you know if you vote for something it should be followed through that's what I've always believed in I believe in democracy the rule of law so you know I will make a stand and they said yeah they're launching this party and they're going to stand in the Euro elections if they happen it wasn't clear they were going to happen so I said yeah fine and then I um they sent me an application form I signed that and then they said would you mind being announced as a candidate so what did you sign? What did you sign? Sorry, what was it? Well, they they gave you they give you this candidate application form, which is to be vetted. This on the night, were you pissed? No, well, the first night when I had I had been drinking, I said, "Yeah, it sounds like fun." Then afterwards, I considered it. I spoke to a few people, and they said, "You know, why don't you run? It, it may not happen. We didn't think it was going to happen." I then went for some some meetings and interviews, and it was very much a single issue party, which is to um, campaign to respect the result of the referendum. So all based on democracy. Very simple, no manifesto. I said, well, it's, you know, it's not difficult to uh, run for. And there was no election. No one, it wasn't confirmed as happening. So I became a candidate. Yeah. And then Theresa May announced that we are actually um, going to run in the uh, European elections because um, she couldn't take us out on the 29th of March. And I then got asked to be announced as a candidate um, by the Brexit party as it, as it became known with the full branding and everything launched. And 
Yeah, that that just changed my life considerably over the last six weeks because when I got rolled out as a candidate, um, it, the Daily Mail put me as the number one article that afternoon, the Daily Mail Online, which is the most widely oh, read really? yeah, paper or n- online newspaper. So within um, well, within one day, um, I was then suddenly being asked to do loads of media, social media, my own personal social media went crazy. And then I was thrown into this political world. What did you expect, though? I mean, in, did you not expect to be thrown into the political world? Yeah, no, no, because I've, <laughs> I've always had an interest in politics. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. I've always had an interest, and I've always thought I'll go into politics at some point. But um, look, if you look at previous Euro elections, nobody has taken any notice, certainly wouldn't have made anywhere near the top 10 news articles on the Daily Mail certainly not front pages it was much, it was it would be more like a glorified council election but because of the issue of brexit how divisive it has been there's so many things that's thrown up it was the number one political piece of news if not the political piece of news of new parties refighting the referendum so every candidate was thrown into this prominence and then when we realized the conservative party weren't going to run a campaign labor has self-destructed it then became a two-horse race between the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party, which gained all this momentum from doing these rallies. Obviously, Nigel Nigel Farage is one of the most um, capable campaigners in British history. He knows how to run a campaign, knows how to set up a party. So we had this momentum and this press attention that we were getting some other big characters that that joined as candidates. Five, Five, six weeks later, I'm stood there, elected, as an MEP, so um, I'm. This is one week on, by the way, and um, I've had time to think about things. And you know, it, it's been broadly very, very positive. I thought I would get um, hounded by people, and there's been some negativity, but people are really positive about um, one, the party, two, making a stand for something I believe in, and uh, three, the potential opportunities it could throw up. So, well, the thing is, <coughs> so. I uh, I agree with like the, the labels that go have gone to people who are within the Brexit party or Brexiteers, but it goes both ways. It goes yeah, it does, know, yeah, the, the people who are on the Remainer side get yeah. labelled and whatever. Um, and when and I, I when when I saw you, I can't remember who told me you you I didn't even know you were a candidate. Um, I can't remember who told me you elected. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? One, what the bloody hell's he doing? And uh, and two, oh my god, he's in for a storm of negativity online. But then uh, when you were talking, then it's it's made me realise you, it's it must be very difficult for people who are that who are that that sort of right, left, blue, red, uh, progressive, or flipping Nazi. You know, they they box people into different mm. different boxes. It's very difficult for them to come and have a go at you because of like your conservation work. You you not you you're not you. To, you're not the stereotypical person they would assume to be part of the Brexit party, which gets labelled as racist and all sorts. It's just, it's just madness. It's madness. Uh, um, no, 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 I think and it's nice to hear that you haven't had much neg- negativity. That surprises me as well, though. There has been some, but um, I think my view on it, when I realised how serious it was going to become in that first couple of weeks, um, I obviously thought, what have I done? But at the same time, I thought, you know, if you come across, just be honest about your motivations and what you believe in then a majority of people are reasonable and are decent and they see you for who you are whatever party you stand in we know 
the Labour Party has decent people and has some absolute lunatics. We know that's the same in the Conservative Party. Every political party has people we respect and others we disagree with and others we just think we just you'd never want to meet them or anyone ever want to associate with them. That That is the same with what's happened in the Brexit Party. So, you know, yeah, my concentration is environmental and green issues. And the people that have been most vocal <clears throat> having a go at me have been environmentalists. Really? Mm. Because they see it as a bad thing that you're associating with the Brexit Party. Brexit Party. So oh. what the view is, is that um, broadly conservation of the environment is the um, baby of the left. It's they believe that they've championed it and you can't really be sort of right or centre or a Brexiteer and be interested in the environment. Which is wrong because the first prominent figure in British politics to talk about the climate crisis global warming was margaret thatcher oh. yeah and and she made a very bold speech about climate change but the thing is if you look at people like donald trump you look at the republican right and there is an international corporate movement of climate change deniers people that are not interested in wildlife they would happily dig up the entire world for its natural resources for its oil regardless of what destruction they cause to ecosystems um, they are a prominent wealthy group of people and they have backed populist movements around the world. And there are people, some people in the Brexit party have expressed um, skepticism towards climate issues. There are plenty of conservationist environmental people in it, as there are in the Labour Party and the Conservative Party um, across the political spectrum. But it was assumed that this new party would be anti-environment. It hasn't actually even got a manifesto or policies about the environment yet. They will be green. I doubt they'll be as green as the greens, but um, there there will be a good environmental policy. But it's just not the case that just because you support Brexit doesn't make you um, somebody that absolutely passionately cares about the environment. And if you look to me, two people I have respect for who are campaigners for nature, Ben Goldsmith, Zach Goldsmith, their father founded the Referendum Party in the early 90s the party that wanted a referendum on membership of the European Union. And they are prominent environmentalists and campaigners for animal welfare. And they're the people that inspired me. It was that referendum party. Um, my old school school teacher actually stood for them. So he's probably potentially one of the people that influenced my <laughs> view on um, the European Union. I saw, and I still see the Brexit party in its early stages, very much um, a referendum party and not a UKIP. I would never have stood for UKIP or been involved in that organisation. What's, what's so the aim of the aim of the Brexit Party is basically to deliver Brexit, right? To put pressure on the main parties at Westminster to deliver Brexit. And then what happens after that? Well, exactly. Um, it, this is a, an interesting phase because um, the leader Nigel Farage has said, said he wants to fight a general election and he'll sit select. There's 650 M uh, MPs or candidates you need to put forward to fight a general election. Huge thing. And he's saying he wants to fight the general election, which would mean fighting against Conservatives, Labour, Liberal Democrats, Greens. Uh, huge prospects. But it obviously um, could potentially mean splitting uh, the right to centre vote. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of issues that need to be talked about there. And that <clears throat> obviously means having a full manifesto on everything that affects our lives, or at least a policy positions uh, they don't want to use the word manifesto so there's a lot there's a lot to play for but i have said 
Um, I'm happy and I feel like I've done the right thing standing up on an issue I believe in, which is democracy, respecting the result of the referendum. Um, and I will take my duties as an MEP come the 1st of July seriously. But um, I'm not looking to go full time um, straight into politics, which would mean fighting a general election as well. Um, I'm going to do I've done my bit. And um, depending on how last, long this lasts, we should be out on the 31st of October, but we may not. But beyond that, you know, I want to get back to my conservation environmental work um, and, some, and, and some of that through making TV shows. But uh, God knows how this is going to long last. This is mm. going to la uh, last for mm. a lot of it. I mean, a lot of a lot of it's riding on um, decisions that Labour and Conservatives make now. I, I feel like if they were to, you know, the, the Brexit parties and the Lib Dems, like you said, they've been prospered off those two clusters going on at the minute. You're absolutely right, yeah. Um, which isn't such a bad thing. Good to shake up the nest sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I, I am, I'm in line with your view that um, the, the people voted was the, the people voted for something. There was a vote, and the vote was in favour of Y as opposed to X. So Y should be delivered. That's what I think, regardless of what regardless yeah. of what the, the that that vote was on. Um, but I do think that if uh, I can't see the Conservatives getting their acting gear. Um, enough to get a lot of public opinion back inside, and public support back inside. But I think with Labour, if Corbyn goes and he gets someone else in, I I do think that it'll it'll go. The public the public opinion will come back in favour of Labour and sort of the, the likes of the Brexit Party and Lib Dems. That that wave that's been ridden now would quite easily go away. But again, I can't see that happening either. Cor Corbyn would have gone by now. He's a madman. You, you would think he's gone by now. He just no, seems no. to be doing more harm than good in, his, in that party. But he cemented his position for momentum uh, and because they did quite well in the last general election. So he's still strong. But, I mean, what is going on? That a new party can establish itself for six weeks and win an election. That's extraordinary. Uh, the Lib Dems, who are all but wiped out, down to, I think, 11 or 12 MPs in the last general election, they're back. They've got the bit between their teeth. We've seen a green surge across Europe. Lots of green parties are doing well. And uh, the Tories have just hit, or the May, have hit the self-destruct button. And now we've got this leadership campaign, which is completely ludicrous. Twelve people think that they should be prime minister. I mean, you've got to be joking. Most of them shouldn't be allowed to be in politics. I mean, there is, we are bereft of talent. You just, and, and that, you know, when you speak to people that are stood for the Brexit party, um, a lot of them said, you know, you know what? I looked at who's in politics now and thought, could I do a better job than them? And they're successful people, hardworking people from a variety of backgrounds. And they, they asked themselves that question. And they're like, yeah, I could actually. So when they got this opportunity to, to um, sign up as a candidate, people said, yeah, I'll give it a go. <clears throat> and because it, the party has so little time to make a decision on um, candidates, it's given ordinary people, people from business people that have worked um, in banks in the nhs in the armed forces uh, as cabin crew from a huge variety of backgrounds the opportunity to have a voice and by pure chance you know we we are going to increase the diversity the ethnic diversity of the european union we're almost going to double it the brexit party what do you mean what do you mean with well, this the european union is all um almost 100 it's like 98 percent white people mainly white men that run it european commission european parliament european judges and so we've got um 
candidates, a diverse range of candidates of who are now ME, are now elected MEPs. For example, we've got the first person in Scotland, um, first black person to be elected for um, for a parliamentary position. Openly gay guy, yeah. So we've got, you know, it's extraordinary what's happened is having a new party with a, um, a different selection system is giving people from all walks of life the ability to access politics. And the reason they're doing that is people are either disconnected and think, I don't want anything to do with it, or they're so raging, raging listening to um, LBC or listening to the news, they think, oh, I want to do something. And, when, and I've thought that for a long time. And I thought, you know, when the opportunity came, I was like, okay, it's a quick snap decision. Let's see what happens. So we're on the horse. It's good, mate. I'm excited. I'm excited <laughs> for you. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not you, though. Uh, <laughs> what, um, what's the... So come first of July. Come first of July. What's the... Uh, what, do you got any idea what your work routine's going to be like? What, you, what your commitments yeah, yeah, are? No, the, yeah, I do. You? I, I do have some idea. I don't know how consuming it's going to be... Um, from a personal point of view or professional point of view but next week we're going over for the inductions it's like first day at school or you know we're like joining the military you're safety take, brief and that. You, yeah exactly you've got to take your id <laughs> you've got to take your bank account stuff and just show you prove you, all that stuff i imagine be shown around like I, I can only imagine there'll be a dull as hell health and safety brief i'll make sure i'm outside going for a run when we have that one but that sort of joining run and then um well, we do have a joining run, actually. There's there's these sort of parties that happen, political parties. I bet that's fun, isn't it? <laughs> Just meeting all the other MEPs. It's going to be a real experience. So we've got the, we've we've got the the admin, and then there's some drinks and things like that. But then I think things officially kick off um, on the first second of July. Parliament sits, and we also have had to submit applications for what committees we want to sit on what are we there's loads of committees isn't there when yeah. i because when i heard about you i went and actually did some research yeah. on europe you know what, what's all this jazz man it's committees for committees but it's there, um, me too i've, I've <laughs> <laughs> you and me both yeah. yeah there's loads of green ones i know it's brilliant I I've, so I've, this, yeah. Yeah, so I've put myself forward for the environmental committee and the defense committee because i happen to know a little bit about those and i care about those two issues um and i think that's going to be fascinating Mm. And you know, it's not all bad in the EU. There is there is opportunity to do some good. I still believe we should leave and be independent, but um, got to take a constructive approach to um, anything that you do when you're representing your country. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, whether we're in the EU or that, whether out, the way we do things now still affects us. Absolutely, <laughs> in the yeah. future. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. It's just it's going to happen. Um, yeah, it is exciting, mate. It is exciting. This is the first interview, personally, I've given since I've been an M MEP. Sort is it? Of. Yeah, and yeah. I was swearing at the start. Well, it's fine. Oh, that's right. Okay. This, I mean, I imagine some people, like journalists and stuff, will sort of trawl through this to see if I've made any oh, yeah. huge errors. But I can only, I can only approach it and be honest about the experience so far. Um, I've enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm actually looking forward to it. Um, but the question I, I did Radio 4 actually the other day was very good snatch on. They said, what happens if we don't leave on the 31st of October? And I said, oh, well, we will cross that bridge when we get there because um, say we do not end up for some reason leaving the European Union, you're elected for five years. Oh. Yeah. What's that, 2024? 
I don't even know how old I'll be. How old I'll be then? But like 54, 55. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. Yeah, I mean, so you know, things. These are all things to consider. I I described it as this. Imagine I said, Keir, do you want to go for a five k run? You're like, all right, fine, I can crack that. Whilst we're running, I'm like, do you know what, mate? I lied. It's a marathon. <laughs> and then when we get to 26.1 miles, I was like, oh, fuck it. Let's just crack an Iron Man whilst we're at it. Yeah. And that's, you know, but this is potentially what we're facing. It's meant to be 31st of October cut off. It could be next year. Or it could be it's five years. Can you see, uh, can you see as not leaving? Yeah, I think. I really? Think, yeah, well... I think it's less likely now. Well, put it this way. If if we had a second referendum, I think we'd be rather uh, we're evenly split, fairly evenly split. Could be the other way around, could be the same, could be 50-50. I'm not sure that's going to answer any questions. It's just going to push um, parties further entrenched into their positions, create an even bigger backlash. My view is that we've got to give this a go. We've got to, the, the country is going to succeed in or out the European Union, we're Great Britain. It's just the model that we follow. <coughs> and I have said this, I said this too on a CNN interview, that democracy is not a static process. The future of the country uh, evolves. And we've got to give this a good go for a solid period of time. You know, two to three parliaments at the minimum, which is over 15 years. And at that point, you can reflect and say, if the European Union is just a roaring success and it's running away and we've been left behind, then it's quite right for that generation to be able to have a vote to go back in and renegotiate terms. But if Britain is successful and the European Union is just doing its thing as it is now, it's either crumbled or it isn't successful, um, yeah, people still have the right to review that. Um, but if, if, it, if we are successful, we're unlikely to go back in. I think fundamentally uh, by us leaving the european union um, by paying you know they've got a smaller budget we're a net contributor so for for every pound we give we get less money back so we we bankroll the, the institution they will struggle without us without our um, gravitas on the world stage and, and you know it may it may well falter but who knows i, d I don't think anybody I, you'd be a, a very um strong character or you know to put money on what's going to happen in the united kingdom or the european union over the next five years the, the, the question the question for me with it with it all now is not um what what's better uh sorry what's gonna what's gonna be what's better staying or, or stay in the eu or, or leave um <clears throat> that that that's the question that was being asked before you know before the vote the question now is for me, the, the the factor is no, not about whether we're going to be good or not being out of the EU if we if we leave. It's that that like we were saying just now, there's been a vote, and it's not being delivered. And like regardless of what, what the outcome is, like as I just alluded to, and it, the prospect of the prospect of us not leaving, and let's say a, 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 well, it'd have to be through a second referendum, wouldn't it? A, a second referendum being called, and and let's say a vote happens and it goes the other way. Prospect of that happening frightens me because um because I think that the Brexiteers they we would see rioting 
a lot of writing, it's a lot of violence. <clears throat> you think you're that just because of the. I, I just, I just think that's what I want to go mm. towards. But also, on the long term, and sort of an, on a more psychological, so, sociological kind of point of view, in future votes or whatever they are, be it for a general election or be it for a local council or be it to um, maybe vote to go, go back in the EU, for example. Oh no, well it'd be to leave the EU a second time. Um. How could you have any faith in any of that? How could you? It's it, it it it's and and the argument that the argument really annoys me. Um, to say that well, we should have a second referendum, referendum because uh, what they said was lies, and it's it's different now, and we know so much more now. No, 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 no. Everyone is still speculating. Everyone is still speculating. Maybe little things like the uh, the allegation that. Um, Boris Johnson used that quote inside of the bus and he shouldn't have said it and it was wrong. That's an example. That's one example of what every single MP in every single party does or did do or, or does over time. They just, that's just what it is. Yeah, they you, exaggerate. You, you twist yeah. things to, you, to manipulate pub, uh, um, public opinion to yeah. get votes on your side. Well, which that's is exactly what, what Project Fear was about. They told us there'd be mass job losses immediately, the country being in recession. Both sides play at it. There is a fundamental problem with politics that people don't feel that they can trust members of parliament or people in the political system. And I think a large part of the success of the Brexit party and new new parties is that, and even for the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, is that they feel that they can't trust the mainstream parties. In fact, the Liberal, Liberal Democrats got hammered. They started this by, they had a manifesto on tuition fees and then when nick clegg joined the conservative government coalition they went back on that and that's what decimated them <clears throat> so there is a there's a fundamental breakdown of trust between the public and politics how do you change that though how do you change that all right because I, I thought this one of the things when i war game it for all of 10 seconds in my head because that's about the depth of my knowledge when it comes to politics i think <laughs> how could you make how could you change that how could you make people when they how could you how do you change it so when uh, an mp pledges something because in the general election for example so when boris johnson who's on about standing isn't he oh he is standing says if i get in i will for example and he hasn't said this but for example lower um uh lower flipping uh and uh, national insurance contributions by five percent whatever right and then he gets in he doesn't bother doing it how do you make how how do you get the people to make sure that what they are saying if they, they don't actually try and do what they say they they said they do then they get pulled up for it like uh not like uh, like a uh, 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 not sanction a flipping punishment yeah no no well I, the, the election's going to be two years earlier now because you you haven't you haven't you haven't bothered your ass trying to achieve even 50 percent of manifest, the pleasures yeah, yeah. you make you know well i mean that, that is a big point is how do you make people accountable to their manifestos you can't just lock them up um but that no, and also if you did if he's if if those were in place, then the mission of the opposition would be don't let him or her get anywhere near fulfilling any of the, any of the manifesto because because yeah, I mean that whole point of democracy and accountability is that yeah people want to be reelected. So if you deliver, if you are not honest, five years later you'll be thrown out. That's the issue for me of the European Union is that 
the new president that's been elected, the commissioners, <coughs> there's no ability to get rid of them, to hold them to account. And they have executive and legislative powers that affect us. The, the MEPs, and I'm interested to find out just how, what the accountability is, what the structure is. For as far as I'm concerned, or for, as far as I can see, there's no uh, recall powers of the regional constituents. So I represent the southwest of England, huge area, Devon, Dorset, Wiltshire, Somerset, um, and Gibraltar and uh, Cornwall. I mean, that's an enormous area. It's an enormous area to campaign in. Gibraltar? Yeah, Gibraltar's been bolted on into there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I had to go and campaign there, which is fascinating. I did the rock run, actually. <laughs> well, that's another story there. But um, uh, how can you really represent the interests of such a huge area where the, ec <clears throat> like the ec economic activities in those areas range from um, fishing towns and villages through to agriculture, a large number of farmers. You've got cities in there um, with industry. You've got um, you know tech companies, finance, so many interests. How can you how can you have enough knowledge or enough interaction with the public to adequately represent them? And then how can they hold you to account? An MP, your local MP, has to hold a surgery. He has a much smaller area and and is far more accountable. And as you can see in Peterborough, the by election on Thursday. The local MP, Fiona Onasanya, she was uh, guilty of um, speeding and lying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so her constituents all had a petition and they have called her back for a by-election. So she's now resigned. So she's been held accountable by her constituents. That's how functioning parliamentary democracy should work. And if by us returning all the powers to parliament we can make our own decisions in the future and hire and fire a government which we can still do at the moment but we have control over everything that's the point of a of a, an accountable democratic system um but i'm you know there is a lot to learn about the systems and committee structures within the european parliament and i will be writing about it i've been asked to write in the telegraph writing in the huffington post so i'm, I'm just going to give people a um an account of what I see before me, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, over the over this journey. That'd be interesting. That'd be very interesting. Question for you: um, Why, why, are, why, why don't MEPs come from um, one of the MPs that serve in the southwest, for example? Well, you can't have you can't hold two positions. They are they're totally different jobs. You know, MPs are incredibly busy at Westminster. Uh, to go out to be, be a member of the European Parliament, you it's, a, it's it's another job. There's there's a lot there is a lot going on in Brussels. It has a lot of power. Um, so yeah, that's not it's simply not not mm. possible. All of you learning curve for me, mate. And um, you know when when I was on last time, I know we you can ask me as much as you want about politics. Um, but we did talk about discussing Afghanistan, didn't we? I know, absolutely. Let's talk about the book. You want to talk about the book? Yeah. Or the Afghanistan? Go on, well, you brought it up. You tell me what well, we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, when you talk about books, I'm actually um, putting together uh, to write about wildlife crime, the wildlife wars and wildlife warriors, the people working to preserve the environment, to preserve nature. Um, a war is playing out globally very much like the narcotic wars uh, and the only difference is that the commodity is wildlife it's animals it's hardwoods it's ivory it's rhino 
rhino horn, all those things, when you tot it up, makes it the fourth largest uh, illegal uh, crime network in the world. And I think I talked about this. So I am um, pretty talking about writing a book about that because I think that's the issue of our times. We can come back to that one because that's easy. I could waffle on about that. And I think I did last time. Afghanistan. Why do I want to write about Afghanistan? Well, we both went there. I've since seen some, some pretty alley photos of you back in uh, Sangin. That, you were in Sangin, weren't Musa you? Musakala. Musa, I was in Sangin, but the well, photos that, you well, were We can about. talk about this. It's interesting. Musakala, because I did Herrick 7. We retook Musakala after it was given up. But um, what fascinates me about Afghanistan is in the 1960s, it was on the hippie trail. People used to go out there and smoke drugs and chill out, go up, walk up the Hindu Kush. Beautiful place rich in culture, very friendly people, absolutely fascinating and stunning country, which is what Afghanistan should be. Then you had the Soviets, the war between 1970, was it 1981 and 1979, million people killed, a million civilians killed. Soviets spent millions of pounds, lost thousands, even not hundreds of thousands of troops, and ultimately lost. They withdrew when the um yeah, when the Berlin Wall came down, the collapse of the Soviet Union. They lost that war. They lost that. 79 to 89, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was 70. You're right, 79 to 89. <clears throat> and it crushed an empire. Mm. And then the Taliban rose, and the Taliban allowed uh, Al Qaeda to flourish in eastern Afghanistan. Uh, and more important than that, we got involved post 9 11. And we. I think we got involved there. It was a snap decision made by Tony Blair. Because remember, Tony Blair, 2001, was all-powerful with a huge majority in government. He could basically do what he wanted, and he cozied up to George W. Bush. So we found, Britain found itself in two foreign policy adventures, two foreign wars, because America went there, and we wanted to show that we were a good ally. So at that time, 2001, I don't know how old you were then, but I was just at the, the start of university when 9-11 happened. 20. We were about the same age, aren't we? Yeah. So when I left uni, I did Royal Marine Commando training because I'd already signed up to the Royal Marines. They sponsored me through university. So I had no choice, although I had to pay back a load of money. But I wanted to be in the Marines. But what I signed up for before uni, the world completely changed in 2001. So we didn't have a choice. As soon as I took CTCRN, Commando Training Centre, became... A young officer went to 40 commando within two months i was in afghanistan <clears throat> 22 years old op parrot four and i was in kabul uh, patrolling around uh, looking after security of police district nine we had a few other police districts there we had riots we had ieds the whole host of asymmetric conflict going on meanwhile you guys were deployed down south into your patrol bases into those isolated platoon houses and i was at camp Suta when john reed i can't remember what position he had whether it's foreign secretary or defense secretary which whatever he I think said it was foreign secretary I think it was. he said he hoped that you he hoped that the paras would deploy to helmand without firing a shot that shot being fired in anger yeah <coughs> i mean when's the paras deployed anywhere Without at least having a negligent <laughs> discharge. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. That was of the belt. Uh. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah. How many times... The, if you if you think you're going into a place where you want a peace support operation, don't send in the paras. 
I could think of other units to no, send in before you no, send in. No, that's, that's unfair. But you that's got, unfair. But let's that's be unfair. honest. When you guys did you're your... Playing to the, you're, you're talking to me like the paras are what their reputation is. The war fighters, mate. Yeah, but like we could Marines. do other things like peacekeep, like we have. Done. Yeah, but that, look, you're, if you were like, imagine this. But if you're gonna, you're eat, you've got dinner laid out, and you're having a steak, <clears throat> you don't take a blunt knife to eat your steak, do you? You use a steak knife. Right. If you're going to war, and you and you know it's going to be aggressive combat. Yeah. What do you choose? Do you choose one of those regiments that no one's heard of, or do you? press the button and call in the marines and the paras yeah so for peacekeeping there's plenty of other regiments that wasn't could have... the peacekeeping operation well it was so you you guys prepared for war didn't you no did we did we hack no our beat up tr- no 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 so this is what people what don't realize tag like? were you, were our, you op prepared tag, for it? our op tag was based on base so you know how iraq the iraq op tag yeah was more or less northern Ireland, but the people who were playing enemy had different color skin yeah yeah it was more or less very very similar Quite calm hmm it was calm. calm. Um, yeah, yeah. It was all attacks. about. It was just no, no, none of that. Um, it was the the beat of training was not not what it should have been. Then, granted, we went to we went three weeks to Oman, and then we did conventional, I think convention, conventional stuff there. Mm. Um, in Oman, and then we went to uh, Afghan. But you know, the first few weeks we deployed there. Nothing was going on. We were out patrolling. No, you didn't go looking for fights. Were you handing out <laughs> blankets? No, 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 no. no. We were in uh, Musakala. What about? Hang Musicala? on. So you landed in Musakala? No, no, no. The beginning of the tour, first place I went, it was Goreshk. Yeah, that's a badass place. At the time, it was alright. Yeah, Goreshk was alright. That first few weeks, yeah. there, it was fine. Out patrolling about, getting people to the ground, key leader engagements, the usual stuff that mm. you would do elsewhere. And then it went. It started going peep top. We went into. Um, I think the first the first contact that happened, we went into. It was an, a company operation at Nauzad, and it was because the the Afghan police, the AMP, in their outpost. Now I, I might be butchering this recollection. I'm trying to think of the reason that we went in there. Mm. And basically, we went into uh, sweet um, push out the Taliban from from the town who were harassing the police. As what, I, what as was I your recall. what was the mission that your unit got deployed on? What were you told you were there to achieve? Again, I'm trying to remember this from 17 years ago, 17 years ago, 13 years ago. Secure Helmand Province or key parts of Helmand Province, so that. Imp- and, and I am absolutely like this is not even paraphrasing. Basically, improvements can be made from um, pr- uh, PRTs, provincial reconstruction teams, going mm-hmm. in and correct, in inverted commas, the bad doings and practices that the Taliban were putting in place, like uh, c- c- girls couldn't go to school, w- women were oppressed, blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. No, no, no. I'm not saying that we were there was right or wrong either. No, no, I know. Uh, but mm. this is part of when we talk about. You said, am I going to write a book or am I do a documentary on Afghanistan? The answer is yes, because I believe that when, if you look at it in hindsight, you know, we, we entered into a conflict, which is not the original, based on the original reason we were there. And then the mission creeps outrageous without the political support, support back in the UK. And since we've withdrawn, okay, albeit there's 550 British troops there and there is some activity, 
But since that, we officially withdrew, it's been swept under the carpet. You never hear about it in the news. No politicians discuss it. They, they discount the fact that over 150,000 civilians were killed, that the, the conflict, the combined total of American British expenditure is over a trillion pounds or trillion dollars, the amount of troops that we lost. And then there's been no real accountability from the military or through the chain of command up to the political level of the decisions are made, the tactics, the operational um, strategy and the grand strategy. We've just fought the longest war in British and American history. And it's as if nothing had happened. And so piecing this together, your story, other people's stories, you know, what, do we, what were we all doing individually? Why, were the, why did we think we were there? And you went back, I take it, after for... Twice. Oh, yeah, like me then. With which other tours did you do? Herrick 13. Oh, I did eight. Oh, shit, you're an eight as well. Bloody hell. And 13, what year was that? 2010-2011 Christmas tour. Winter tour. Okay, I did uh, 11, 12. 12, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so we've had a very similar snapshot of the conflict. Yeah, throughout most of the start to finish. Because my second tour was a heavy... There's the heaviest one with Viking Armour Support Group. Oh, I did an eight month tour and it was just complete, it was carnage. I mean, say no rules engagement, card alphas. That was all out the window, you know. We're going out on the ground firing three or four I laws, 66s, every contact. The one contact we fired 55,000 rounds of 7.62 with a troop, but the troop of Vikings is that's 14 guys. 55,000 rounds. That's mental. What are they yeah. firing at? Fuck all. I'm joking. <laughs> We got ambushed, anti-armor ambush, um, chasing shadows. We got an anti-armor ambush down from Nusakala back down to Sangan. As oh, you know what? You were on this job. What her eight? Do you remember the air assault we did after Sangan Valley? The Musica- you know the you know the route from Sangan up to Musakala. Mm-hmm. Were you in three para? Yeah. So did you do not do the land on the air assault? I have to remind this. Well, we, 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 we this, got... we... well, not Herrick 8. Yeah, I know Herrick 8. The, Her- thing thing Paris... the problem with Herrick 8 for, for me is it was, uh, I wasn't there for the first stop, the first mission, which was about, about a week or so, and I wasn't ever there for the, the, a couple of the last ones. But the problem with, with me recollecting Herrick 8 is that we were doing strike ops at the Kandahar. So there was loads and loads and loads of small, short stuff. Bam, bam, bam. Oh, no, no. Oh, for, for every, sometimes three weeks at a time. But it's out, you know, you know, uh, so it's loads of different, loads of different missions at loads of different areas. Yeah, well, this, this is, this is one the whole battalion, or at least two or three companies. That must have been the, either the very start when they opted to get Yoda, or towards the end when they were the doing the turbine. Yeah, Yoda was one of the targets. But anyway, oh, there we so go. That's the first one. That was, that was just before I went out there. But what happened was, um, Paris landed, bummed around for two days because obviously the Taliban saw a load of Paris coming. We're like, we don't fancy this. We were the we were support. We had a lot of ammunition support and fire support with Viking vehicles. But when the uh, the CO got bored, lifted off all the paras and that left two troops of Viking on the ground in the middle of Badland Helmand. And we they just they saw that the river was high because of the meltwater coming off the mountains. It means <coughs> that you only could fjord the river in a few places, even though the Vikings float and swim. It, the river's fast flowing, so we did. We were very limited options, so they worked out which routes we'd have to go back, and they laid, they dug in over two days, and they they laid a ten kilometer anti armor ambush, and we had three M kills oh on vehicles, but one one power shot through the leg and ass. Um, I lost 
I lost one guy. I lo another lost his legs. Another one burnt badly. We took about six casualties, and we thought we were out of ammunition by the time we got back to Sangam. No air support, no JTAC. So we're having to go hot on the net um, and clear. Okay, why is that? Why didn't but they didn't let us keep the JTAC? The CO just took took everything off. I said, no, yeah, they'll be fine. Um, I ended up calling fire. I ended up calling artillery onto a small village because we were getting hammered from it. Horrendous, really, if you think about it. Laying down, mm. you know, one hundred fives, fire for effect, continuously, smoke, everything. Um, but we were we had run out of ammunition and we we're completely surrounded. I think the stats in the end. I think we we lost one, we had six, seven casualties, three M kills. That's that's millions of pounds worth of vehicles taken out. We killed twenty of them. Um, complete carnage, and that was swept under the carpet. But you know, what was that battle about? Part part of the problem with these with these campaigns is <clears throat> obviously plays into politics as well. Is that you know, regardless of whether the reason we 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 start one is right or or wrong. It's that over the life of them, if you can do them for a significant period of time, like Afghan was, what? 50, I mean, it's insignificant in what you're trying to achieve, mind. Um, but look how many, look how many, how many leaders change hands in that time. Mm. You know, from Westminster to uh, uh, Minister, defense, the minister. White House yeah, to yeah. you know exactly defense minister to flipping senior senior generals in that in the army and 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 the navy and the air force. How so? How do you keep a like you're saying that mission creep? Uh, uh, you, how would you change that? Um, I don't. Think you it can. did change, and you know what also changed was we became defensive. We became scared of casualties. We lost the night. We just created more casualties. We in my created opinion. more, so yeah. we had these bigger vehicles, heavier body armor. Couldn't move. De everyone getting dehydrated. We were fit like fixed. They had complete freedom of the night, freedom of a maneuver. All the things that we um, practice and we preach in our doctrine. We completely ignored. I mean, I did actually uh, an operation which I got in trouble for um, with the powers. Actually, I had I had I had set teed up with the, with the Marines, a forty commando, and I said, you know, if we want to own the night, we need to impose a, impose a curfew, or at least dominate it by patrolling, <coughs> but by scaring those that are digging in IEDs, that they think every time someone gets caught digging, out of nowhere comes a bullet. You just drop those people. So you that's the way you dominate the ground. You create that fear that if they go out at night and they're laying ideas for close to our bases, they're going to get dropped. So you leave small stay, but stay behind patrols of four, maximum six people. Because what year we, is you know, this? Sorry, this, what, is, what this is 2007. Okay. <clears throat> I said, you know, we've got to take the risk. Four guys can defend themselves for long enough to a QRF to get there. But the policy was, the Battle Group North policy was, minimum of a platoon or, or a troop out at any one time minimum numbers they say 25 to 32 but that you know you cannot hide 32 blokes in the green zone or in the desert but what you can do is go out as a patrol or 30 and drop off two small pockets of four people because they're not unlikely to count you in and then they go at last light and then when those guys come out to dig in the ieds you just start dropping them or at least go over and interdict them and when they know that they can't they don't have freedom of maneuver at night then we would have pushed back the ied belt and would have had more maneuverability to patrol but we didn't do that so i did end up running an operation uh, later on which i didn't fully ask permission to do but i thought it'd be an experiment which is to put a labor high in i got i got some labor behind from fob robinson i went out with the vehicles i got four willing paras snipers 
um, and I pretended that, that one of our Vikings had had hit an IED. So we put loads of smoke, chucked a load of grenades, made it look like it had blown up, and then we towed it away, burnt out a load of tires, left a load of crap in the desert, burning away. And I knew that the Taliban would come out to see what had happened. And we had, in this offset position, para snipers. And I pulled out, and as I pulled out, lo and behold, up came the guys on the motorbikes with the icon. We had the chatter. We confirmed that they were um, Taliban commanders, but we couldn't PID any weapons. And when I put the fire mission in or the permission into uh, the battle group, it was denied. You can't. You don't have the rules of engagement to engage those people. Those all that we knew to be Taliban. And so you're fight. You know, you it's like going to boxing ring with one hand tied behind your back. So that, you know, these stories we talk about, they're just small vignettes of the desperate operation of good good soldiers, good good Marines on the ground. Yet we didn't have the, the right rules of engagement, the right political will, um, even the intelligence or the cultural understanding of Afghanistan. No one really had that. And so you think we had this longest conflict and no one's even talking about it. it you know, it's forgotten. And I think we owe it to the people that gave their lives. We owe it to the people of Afghanistan. We owe it to the country, the taxpayers, and to everybody to talk about it and really dissect what's happened, which is why, um, you know, I want to write a book, Poppy Fields, and I've been <clears> documenting <throat> things about Britain's and America's longest war. How, how, what's the progress of it? Well, nothing in the last six weeks. <laughs> this election's <laughs> taken over, I can tell you that. Um, what's the progress? Well, have you started it? Um, I've been I've been researching. Yeah, I've been putting yeah. I've been doing the research on it because uh, quite a lot of military b- books focus uh, ex you know, army marines all these special forces guys they like to talk about their own battle experiences and yeah I've got been in tons of battles but I think um, having studied history I'm interested in a bit bit more of the why and the what happened almost like a dual narrative <clears throat> what we've been talking about is those intimate experiences on the ground which people like to hear about that. But at the same time, at every point that we were on the ground, there'll be some dialogue going on in the White House or Westminster or some new commander and some reason that we're getting dicked about on the ground because somebody new's come in or they're going to, you know, some new law has been passed or the lawyers have got worried about some sort of ca- civilian casualty and they want to restrict our freedom of manoeuvre even more. And that what happens at the policy level was obviously directly influencing the way we operated on the ground and i don't think that those two narratives have ever been sewn together from a soldier's view and from a sort of historical political view mm, no it'd be it'd be good to it'd be good to read right when it's done and it's i mean there there are a wee sort of things i don't think i don't think you can i, I think if you if you lowered the roe to no if you changed the roe to suit what you and i would are quite happy and and, and know what is required to so basically, if we to give it more, more onus on the person who's going to be taking a shot or making a decision uh, to to act in in an ethical and moral means way. and responsible way, then that that's fine. But then you get morons. I don't think you can change that. But I mean, a hundred percent people will get out of control. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, I, um, but the from from that perspective that you're talking about. There's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem with the information about these campaigns in that e- e- people either one way or the other, and it's 
Either it was why you were there, it's completely bollocks. We achieved nothing, which isn't right. Because um, at one point we were there for a reason, and we were achieving things, and at least one point, right? Yeah, I mean, one big notable point about Afghanistan is not all doom and gloom. Whilst we were on the ground, there were no terrorist attacks in the United Kingdom. They all came out to fight us. And better they fight us out there than they take on civilians in the UK. See, that would be swung. So you asked me before the podcast who I had on recently. I had on a guy called Philip Clark, who is the UK coordinator for Veterans for Peace. Mm. Yeah, I should have got these flipping wine gums. Yeah, <laughs> I choking on your they own keep one. getting stuck in my throat. Um, this seat is unbelievably uncomfortable, by the way. Never yeah, these are new ones, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, what, how, what were you talking about then? Oh, yeah, Veterans of Peace. Yeah. Oh, and so what are you saying? Oh, right, there, there were no, no terrorist attacks happened while we were in Afghanistan. They happened after. Right, so the way he would, and I'm thinking he did come on to something like that, is, well... The terrorist attacks happened because we were in Afghanistan. You don't know either way, right? You don't know either way. But nine eleven, we weren't in Afghanistan. Exactly. I'm. I'm yeah, one of, it's I one of the things I brought up. It was. It, it'd be worth you listening to it, mate. An interesting, interesting conversation. Um. But the point, the point being is, you need to have people like yourself, not myself. I don't have your knowledge, education, or um bigger picture oversight when you were serving and, and now to be able to put it or I'm not I can't stream any words together either this is a nightmare today isn't it? this is absolutely sorry I've got a wire trap on my leg yeah what is going on yeah you got it right, right. Um, so it'd be interesting to, to for you to put into words because you are quite happy to talk about battles and contacts as they were on the ground and, and in, you know as a soldier would but you're also quite happy uh, to acknowledge or or address and discuss areas that are up for debate like why are we there was it worth it what was the point um the motivations are going there uh like you said blair and and wanting to uh, side up with the americans as, as allies but then what one of the things with, with that point of view is uh, is that a is that a bad thing to want to side with a stronger power or show your allegiance to a, a stronger power, is it a bad thing in terms of longevity for the survival of the nation? Interestingly, I was listening to Tony Blair talk about why we stay in the European Union, and his thesis is 50% correct, um, that as the two main powers in the world or power is based upon economic might or number of people you have so china and india are going to be the dominant players in the future we will only survive and have any influence if we all club together uh, and create this nation this european nation that's blair's view and he's right to say that you know china is going to become the most powerful country in the world india's right up there and then below that are economies and countries that have between 150 to 250 million people. So big, big countries, they're going to have increasing influence. Um, but he's wrong to say the only way to counter that is then we've all got to create a United States of Europe, which is what he's an advocate for. He's a federalist. Because um, we can have alliances against uh, these organizations. We can have strong alliances. And that's what NATO has proved. NATO faced down the uh, Soviet Union NATO has worked uh, was the, it's the longest standing most successful 
military alliance in history. Today or this week we celebrate D-Day. That was a coalition of countries from all around the world, all around from at the time the British Empire, America, Canada. We all worked together in a coalition under a single command for a common purpose. We can continue to do that on, on the issues of the day such as environmental issues. We can we have organizations or we can form new organizations where we collectively agree. So you don't need to become one country. They talk about Alliance of America. Um, so we do need alliances with strong partners. But that does not mean America should decide our foreign policy and we should have the strength and courage, as France has done twice, to say we don't agree with that conflict and we will support you in other ways, but we are not going to get involved in your war. And the French did that in Vietnam. The French did that in 2003 uh, in Iraq. They didn't get involved. And you know what? They're still, they've still got very strong ties uh, with the United States. And they've proved themselves uh, as being a capable military partner in the 21st century with some of their operations in Mali. So we don't have to have our foreign policy run by America. And we also don't need to have our domestic policy and all our other laws made uh, in the European Union. We can be independent and be a, a powerful, strong, uh, hard power and soft power in the world. And, but that's by having um, a voice in organizations, global or international organizations. That doesn't mean you need to give away your sovereignty to other people. That's been my fundamental view on Brexit, but that's also my view on foreign policy, where I do think uh, since 1997, we have done everything that the Americans have wanted us to do. Since 97. Yeah, when Blair came in. That's when the whole thing went peaked on mm. in the United Kingdom, in my view. That's also when we signed up most of these treaties for the European Union. 1991 was Maastricht, and then there's three more after that. Amsterdam, Nice, and Lisbon. They created the European Union as of today, and Blair never asked the British population, do you want this or not? So we are now, we live in the post-Iraq-Afghanistan era. We live in the post-2008 world economic crash era, where... Bankers were allowed to get away with murder under Blair mm -hmm. and uh, what's it called for uh, Bush. Yep. And we live in an era where the European Union has grown unchecked. These treaties have allowed an organization to grow that is unaccountable, not, lacks transparency. And people feel detached. They feel they're angry at our foreign policy. They're angry at the banking system. They're angry at politicians all round because they feel they can't be trusted. They've not delivered um, equality in living standards. And, you know, they've been starting conflicts, which has had a blowback effect. We have had, there has been terrorist incidents in the United Kingdom because of things that we have done overseas. And you, you know, you and I know that we're not particularly popular in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And some of our actions have radicalized people there. So, that's why I say 1997 was a watershed because the actions of the Blair government, un yeah, I'm bloody uncomfortable here. <laughs> the actions of the Blair government, we're now sorting out in 2019. Hmm. Going back to NATO and um, and you you referenced D-Day and people coming together and showing that you can you can get together and 
yeah fight the good fight when it's needed is that not they, those are reactive though right those are those are reactive things reacting to threats well, yeah, we've, to got NATO, we've got nato now haven't we so we we don't we don't need a european defense union to creating a common defense policy and army and navy no i don't agree with that no, no. um but that's what they're creating at the moment the european defense union we've got nato um the, so the european defense union is actually a thing that's actually going to happen yeah describe it to me what's what outline it so what they're trying to do is um what they are doing is you are creating command structures which enables them to take in national armies so uh, elements of <coughs> british armed forces and all the other 27 uh, nation states and put them under a european command so the command structure will have different uh um senior personnel from across the european union and they command the forces put into their uh, under their structure which uh, is essentially rivaling nato that's what nato does but it's a european union structure which it creates uh, by default a european army a european navy and a european air force because it's that structure is independent uh, of the nation state command structure oh. it's not been debated so and it's way more complex than any of us think and i and i will be the first to say i do not know the details of what has happened in the last year i've only just started really looking into looking into it properly and i'm looking forward to going to the european union to actually see just is it scare tactics that 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 um we are now fully fully getting involved in the european defense union and they are really on the road to creating a european army um or um, is it actually just a still an idea and it doesn't lack it actually still lacks teeth we need to find out more but from everything i'm hearing from those that do know that uh, the, the truth is that we have signed us in ourselves into something that is a replication of nato and if you listen to the rhetoric from president uh, macron uh, and other leaders across the european union they absolutely intend to rival nato to create a single federalized european armed forces and though that's not been put to the that's not been the european people haven't been asked about that in different nations we haven't been asked about that we need to find out more mate um but ultimately we should be leaving so we shouldn't be too worried about all that mm. if we leave on the <clears throat> if we leave on the 31st october you'll still have a period to serve after that won't you no out it won't be like a, a back on the period. Back on the yeah, I would have thought you'd have to stay under the bridge. Under the bridge, because it'd be like a transition, wouldn't it? Like a couple no, years no, I don't. I don't know. I know. I've, I've got. Like I say, you know, I'm. I really do want to um, dedicate time for these two books I want to write about wildlife wars and Afghanistan. Um, cause, you know, looking at the the schedule over the summer now, I'm gonna be pretty busy. So I look forward to getting back to the issues I really care about environment and i still think there is unfinished business to be resolved about talking about afghanistan mm, definitely yeah no i agree i the uh the, the cl climate change at the minute it seems to of the last to me it seems over the last few months it just seems to have taken a a, a leap forward in terms of the the efforts people organizations countries are going to yeah, to yeah. bring it down it's all of a sudden like people i think people are realizing i'm not sure i'm not sure i mean there was a thing came out uh, a couple of months back 
with it. Saying that England, in within twenty five, in twenty five years or in fifteen years, twenty five years will be in negative supply of pot- potable water. England. No, we, we discussed this water wars last time, didn't we? Yeah, but we didn't discuss England and that that. But uh, I thought flipping heck, that brings it properly close to home. Like if it is fifteen yeah, years, yeah. that is, and people, you know, and that that sort of headline that should. That should still be a headline today. That should be a headline every day until we fix that problem because yeah, yeah. the repercussions well, we are can't enormous. Fix, yeah, you know. but mate, it doesn't rain anymore. You can you can reliably invite people around for a barbecue. It does not rain like right, it I'm used. On a bike to. today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, today. <laughs> okay, it's raining today. But in comparison, the winter and summer compared to when we were a child, everything was just rained <sighs> off. I I would be into, or maybe I need to look at the statistics of this. Maybe I'm making up. But I think it you should. Feels <laughs> like I will as well. We're getting hotter summers. You yeah. know, but I I remember as a little kid on fireworks night <clears throat> being freezing because there was snow up my little wellies. Mate, when's the last time it snowed in November in the United Kingdom? You need to have a look at the uh, actual data. But the the yeah. data must be right because they wouldn't be saying it otherwise. I do, mate, I, I do know the data says there that go, things right. the temperature. I do right, know, okay. I, but I honestly, I can't give you precise, precise details. But there's the, the, the trajectory right. is the ch- climate change. Okay, for another example, we now have I'm some, not disagreeing, yeah. some of the best vineyards in the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. French champagne, um, what do you call them? Vineyards, isn't it? Vineyards, that's the one. They're buying plots of land in Kent because our earth and our conditions are perfect for champagne. But that wasn't happening in the 90s and the 80s. So, you know, things are changing. But, you know, as we've discussed the climate change thing last time, you know, it is real. I I, I agree with you that something has changed. And I think what, what are those distinctive markers that have changed people's minds? The Blue Planet 2 effect... Um, on the plastics, that's that certainly launched a, a public awareness campaign. Then this um, this Extinction Rebellion movement this year has certainly forced the issue people to acknowledge it. The, the what? Do you know the people that took up residence in Parliament Square and glued themselves to buses and brought yeah. London to a, to a, not a standstill, but it really affected people and it got a lot of press attention. Followed by, um, there's been some r- reports released about the loss of biodiversity, and there could be a million species going extinct because of uh, anthropogenic or human activities. Uh, and then we've had youth movements across the world. You probably heard of this Greta Thunberg, the student, um, and many other amazing young young people are taking this issue incredibly incredibly seriously because they're worried they're not going to enjoy wildlife in the same way as we have done. So I think. There's been a combination of factors, but I still worry that that is only in mature liberal democracies like UK. I'm not sure that message is as obvious or publicly um, well received in the United States and certainly not China or the Far East or the emerging economies, developing countries in Africa. They don't have really time, even though if climate change really affects them, they're not necessarily thinking about good practice for the environment or nature because uh, these some of these countries are developing so in our own micro political climates in the uk i think we think the world's going to be getting better quickly that's not actually the case 
No, yeah, I, I, I agree. How are we doing for time? Well, I'm boring you, am I? No, I just want to. I'll, I'll check the time. Sure. <laughs> All have right. You, have, you got a, have you got to <laughs> get off? Um, got five, ten minutes, mate. Five, okay, ten yeah. minutes. Five, we've got ten minutes max. Okay, well, let's ten. do five. Let's just see some, do some quick fire questions. You are bored, aren't you? You are bored. Great. No, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm bored of my invite. No, no, don't worry about it. Well, I'll tell you what, mate. You'll I'll be coming on a third time, will you? <laughs> <laughs> I will do. No, I, I enjoy it. But um, I, tell you, I suddenly realised I've heard a lot of my own voice in these earphone things over the last six weeks. I've been doing loads of interviews. What's wrong with that? You've got a good voice, mate. No, I don't know. No, you, I, li- I, I like it a lot. Do you? I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from a Let's para. talk about this. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a face for radio. Let's talk about... Um, let's talk about... With all the para slaggings, mm. let's talk about the Royal Marines Commando doll that is on sale. That is Tom Hardy's head. Want to talk about that? Why would and that's been retailed by Royal uh, Royal Marines, yeah, veteran owned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would that happen, Jim? Would, Why on earth would is you? It, do? Is it a doll? It's a flipping doll, mate. What? Why? What? Yes, yeah, a doll. There's a picture of it. Yeah, a doll. Yeah, I see. I have. When seen I say doll, I mean it's, a, it's, a, it's an action man. Action man. I didn't mean. I mean action man. Yeah. I obviously yeah. I love the Royal Marines, but I I do and find Tom it, Hardy. I do find it extraordinary how we um, latch on to celebrities, and and you know we want to be so matey with them. Um, he wasn't even a bootnet. He hasn't got his green beret. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, right? It's good for you. No, I understand we did for but, PR. But, but, um, but he's not a bootnet, right, isn't he? Mate, it? you would not find Power Edge putting anyone who hasn't earned that room beret. And, and you're and you're you're you're, at, you're quite right to do, yeah. <laughs> no, that that is Chad. I, I I mean that is complete nonsense. Could make all of your ambassadors uh, action men, couldn't you? I'd buy the Jimmy Savile one. He was a big ambassador, isn't he? I mean, can you believe? <laughs> of all. all when this is it, of, of all the mistakes to have your of as your ambassador, the Royal Marines ha- gave Jimmy Savile an uh, honorary wasn't there Green Beret. Wasn't only, there a building named after him on the camp? When I joined the Marines, there was a Jimmy Savile room. <laughs> How sinister is that? Down, down, down at the commando training centre, there was the Jimmy Savile. And you think, and you think bloody hell, what? It's all, I mean, but are, this, are we doing enough due diligence on these um, so-called ambassadors? Thing? Uh, on on their views and the variety, and it sounds great, matey matey of Tom Hardy, and I'm sure Tom Hardy's a really good guy. Here he is, um, and he's obviously he's an amazing actor. Oh yeah, this isn't a slight against I'm not Tom Hardy. He is. No, no, it's not no, against no, him. No. But um, you are, he's if gorgeous. they are your ambassador, then things can go wrong. Uh, I, do you know what? I think they should all have to do the commando course to be an ambassador. But why? You know, I don't know. You'd have no ambassadors, mate. Be very few. Yeah, fair enough. Well, all I say is I agree with you. Why are we making? <laughs> Dolls. I want to buy it. With <laughs> why don't you have one? You should have one. It's gonna, yeah. it's gonna be in the studio. Mate, the thing is, you laugh now at us, <laughs> but I guarantee that someone's gonna have the business idea. Some pal's like, "Oh, the Marines doing that, making money. Let's no, make a para one." It'll be a bootneck doing it. Oh, bootneck like uh, uh, pretending to be a para and uh, doing Pretending some, to But be who would it be? What ambassadors have we got? <laughs> Yeah. Who have we got? I did. I did like. Oh, uh, ah! I tell you, who we have got. Sorry to interrupt. So we have got. Um, who have you got? Ross just Kemp. did the D-Day jumps. Oh God, that was awful. What? That bloke the other day, last night, or the other night. Brilliant! It was rubbish. What are you talking about? 
What was Bandwagon? Who, who is that bloke? The motorbike guy. What's he His called? name eludes me. Uh, nobody. Oh, Rubbish on TV. He's not a nobody. He's not a nobody. Mate, he's down to earth. He's a dude. What the fuck's his name? <laughs> That's cele- that that celeb shit. status. When you you don't even need to remember the name because of that celeb. Uh, oh, oh, God. I was just I, talking about him today. I recognise the name, but it was crap. No, it wasn't crap. It was really Mate, good. I thought, really I, good. I thought Para's Ma- Men of War was one of the best documentaries about the armed forces in 10, 15 years. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Like, it's a shame it was only three parts. It hasn't gone along longer. Because, uh, yeah, you know, we've had quite... The Royal Marines are good at doing these things, but I think, you're, you know, that was... No, good, that one you did was a fucking embarrassment. Yeah, it was, yeah. The yeah. last one was about an yeah, embarrassment. Was, yeah. We were, luck, we, were luck, we were lucky. Like, I, I had the good the, fortune the, to meet the, the, producer, leader, yeah. the producers. I, I'm, I'm more old school in these things. I'm not interested in showing the sort of, you know, the softer side. Well, get on with it. Show what we do. Show the operations. You know, this is it's tough. Let's not dress up combat. Let's tell it as it is. Um, but, there, of course, we've got a human side. Um, but I'm more old school in that. And, but I think the, the that gave a good account of the powers. And I'm sure, and I hope you've had a good surge of recruitment from that. I think so, yeah. I think I think, it's, I think, I think that's, that's what happened. Yeah, I had the good fortune to talk to um, one of the producers involved in that after it was done. Did he? Yeah, a lady. And got all the, the um, behind the scenes, what else went on that they couldn't, that they couldn't put on TV. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's quite good. Quite good. Um, oh, I, could ima- I could imagine there's some career-ending stuff that they managed to keep off the... Uh, off the cut yeah yeah it was the powers, isn't it? but at the same time it, it was um it was nice to hear how little had been staged yeah you know um they gave them for access then yeah it was, it was interesting really good right six minutes to seven what's that guy's name the motorbiker <sighs> ranks tt Iron man tt close at the edge um why is he picked what's his what's his status with the powers and it's not. No, it's not. No. It's not. He, he's just a petrol head, isn't he? And he's he's a petrol head. He's he's quite prominent on that kind of TV now to do with big engines and things with motors and planes and boats and oh man, what's his name? Anyway, uh, so he. You know, my dad did the twentieth uh, anniversary jump at Arnhem. Twenty fifth. Yeah. Jesus. Here's here's in ten power because ten power did would jump to Arnhem. Oh yeah, yeah. And he yeah. said uh, a couple of the guys had fought at Arnhem. Were in Tempar at the time. Showed did the battlefield tour. Awesome. I mean, that is. Are we so that's fifty years ago. Oh, what's my dad? Seventy two. Bloody hell, that's pretty, yeah. Oh, crazy. We're going out. To, I'm, um, I'm doing a talk. On, I'm not. Talk, I'm talking on BBC on Thursday about D Day actually. Um. And you know, cause I can't imagine what it's like doing an opposed beach landing. It's bad mm. enough jumping in the water when it's freezing at night mm. and running up the beach of your kit without being shot at and running through barbed wire. So, yeah, that's going to be interesting to talk to other people, potentially some veterans and uh, historians on Thursday. You got a motorbike license? I have, yeah. I had a Triumph Tiger, but I've given up on the motorbiking. I think that's the most dangerous activity that you can do as a human being. It depends how you ride it. It depends how other people ride it and what the state the motorway is in. Mm. Anyway, we're we're rambling now. How long have we got? Well, the reason I asked, we're biking out to Arnhem for the Arnhem. Oh, are you? Oh, I see. Speak off air. Okay. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to jump in there, but I don't think it'll go down well. Boot yeah, I jumping did, yeah. in. Yeah, I did it. Yeah. No, you can still jump. Oh, what? No, that trip to Arnhem. There's a bunch of boot necks coming. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Some of you know. All right, right. mate. Been a pleasure. Thank you, mate. Uh, yeah. As always. Uh, the last time you ever on. 
No, I look forward to round three. <laughs> Let, let's do a round three next good year. Good luck, uh, mate. Good luck with the MEP Thank you stuff. Very much. Good yeah. luck with the books and, most importantly, the conservation efforts. Yes, and I have a TV show coming out oh, on sorry, yeah, yeah. Shark Week, 28th of July this year. Shark Week, Discovery Channel, America's favourite week, soon to be Britain's favourite week. And the show is called Shark Wreck 2 with Paul de Gelder and I. And uh, yeah, I'm really... That we spoke about last time. Yeah, absolutely. You jumped so, into the water again. Yeah, we, we skydive into the Pacific and um, we're retelling some of the stories of what it's like to be a Second World War pilot shot down in the Pacific. So we jump in, spend two days in the water and with sharks and shark sanctuary and of course we're um, raising conservation issues and just how many sharks have been killed as a result of commercial fishing so yeah it's an adventure conservation program so please tune in to shark week this year 100 percent, awesome james glancy james glancy.com dot com mate done excellent wait should we fist pump because it's <laughs> second time fist pump mate <laughs> That's it. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, hope you enjoyed that podcast. Um, final shout to the sponsors: Westway Nissan, up to twenty percent off purchases of vehicles where eligible if you are serving personnel or a veteran. Uh, also, they've got the deals next trail at the minute. So you can get in some cases up to seven and a half k off a flipping X Trail. Awesome. Westway Nissan UK. Also, Rugby for Heroes. Their Warwickshire Golf Day raising money for three five three. The 353 Trust is on the 21st of June. Go to rugbyforheroes.org to get more information there. I will see you there. It's a golf day and it's dinner and it's for charity. Come along. Lastly, Team Rubicon UK, uh, disaster response charity formed predominantly of ex-military volunteers. You know I love them. I hope you love them too. They do amazing work and they need funding and they need volunteers. TeamRubiconUK.org. That is it. Until the next time, out.